able to do. It says, always be ready to give every man an answer for the hope that is within you. A reason for the faith that we have. And there's good reasons. There's good evidence. There is good uh, logical, apologetic support for what you believe. And you need to know that. You need to understand that. And hopefully we're going to be getting into a little bit of that in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John chapter 10, Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees. And he has spoken to them about the fact that he and the Father are one. And they didn't like that much, so they began to pick up stones to stone him. And Jesus said to them, uh, for which of my good works are you stoning me? And they said, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, being a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. And if he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Patrick, would you put up the, the list? In, in the Gospel of John, there's... Uh, just a lot of meat. There's a lot of substance there. But essentially, what John is doing in his gospel is trying to show that the person of Jesus Christ fulfilled the, the promises with regards to the Messiah. And there are seven miracles or seven signs that we will see as we go through the gospel that Jesus performs and these signs all are indicative not just of the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he has the power to do these works, but they are signs to the Jews and also to the rest of us that, in fact, he is the one the Father sent into the world, as Jesus told the Pharisees there. Now, there are seven miracles or signs that we'll see. He turns water into wine there at Cana. He heals a nobleman's son. He heals the cripple at the pool of Bethesda, and that creates quite a stir. We'll be dealing with that for several chapters. He feeds 5,000. He walks on the water. He heals a man blind from birth, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, these are not the only works that Jesus performed. And in fact, John, when he's talking about why he wrote his gospel, he said this in John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, these seven miracles or signs, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John has written this gospel for a very specific purpose. It is evangelistic in its content. His desire is to get people to understand who Jesus Christ is. And that as they understand who Jesus Christ is and come to faith or belief in who Jesus is, that they can have life in his name. And so that's what we're going to be talking about over the course of the next few months as we study this book. We're going to be studying who is Jesus Christ. 
Now, some of you know the answer to that question. Some of you understand who Jesus is. You've answered it for yourself, and through study, you've confirmed it. The Holy Spirit has made it real to you, and you have that life that John was talking about. Others of you are searching. You're not certain, but you believe that God is leading you on a path. God is drawing you to a belief. Others perhaps here this morning, or perhaps hearing my voice, have never been introduced to the topic of who is Jesus Christ. And we're going to be talking about that this morning. Patrick, would you put up the next slide? In chapter 1, we see seven different titles attributed to Jesus Christ. Now, this is just in the first chapter. We're going to be dealing with this throughout the book. But this, just in the first chapter of John, we see seven titles attributed to Jesus. Four of them are universal in their scope. Three of them are specifically Jewish. He's called the Word. He's called the Light. He's called the Lamb of God. That's a Jewish term talking about the sacrificial uh, function that Jesus performed. He is called the Son of God. He is called the Christ or the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. He's called the King of Israel. And he's also called the Son of Man. So these titles reveal to us, in some regards, a little bit about who Jesus is, that there's a universal scope to his ministry worldwide aspect to what he is called to do. But also that there is a very specifically Jewish aspect to who he is and to what he is performing. So it helps us understand a little bit about Jesus Christ. And again, all of these we'll be exploring in in much greater detail as we go through this book. Patrick, the next But perhaps most striking in the Gospel of John, at least for me personally, are the seven I am's. The seven I am statements that Jesus makes. Because this very powerfully draws us into the reality that Jesus Christ was not just a Jewish rabbi who spoke well and who did good works, but that in fact he was the very God who created the universe. Because each time Jesus says, I am, in the Greek, it's ego emi. I am the existent one. I am the eternal one. In John chapter 8, Jesus told the, the Pharisees, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And he used this term, ego emi. And they knew exactly what he was talking about. Just as they did here in John chapter 10. When Jesus said, I and my Father are one. So these seven I am statements powerfully draw us into the reality of the deity of Jesus Christ. I am the bread of life, he said. I am the one who is able to feed your souls. I am the light of the world. I am the one who brings light into darkness and illuminates your understanding as to who God is and what he desires for your life. I am the door. I am the one through whom you must enter in to God's presence. There is no other pathway or entrance but through me, Jesus said. I am the good shepherd. I am the one 
who will oversee you. I am the one who will provide for you. I am the one who will corral you and bring you and direct you into where you should go. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who rose up from the dead, who conquered death and hell. And I have the keys of hell and of death. And behold, I am alive forevermore, he said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whenever we wonder, which pathway should I follow? How am I to live this life? Where am I to go? What am I to do? The answer is always found in Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. And He is the life. And He is the vine from which we all draw our life. If we as branches are not attached and drawing our life from the vine, Jesus said we're good for nothing but to be bundled up and thrown into the fire. So these seven I am statements reveal to us the deity of Jesus Christ. And as we enter into this study of the Gospel of John, that is one of the things that we will constantly be addressing, is who is Jesus? Because that's why John wrote this book. He wrote it that we might understand that through these signs Jesus performed, that we might grow to know Jesus as the Son of God. So let's get into a study of John chapter 1. If you have your words with you, open them up to John chapter 1. It's on page 2044. That was a joke. Eric got it. Okay. In the beginning was the Word. Now the term Word there is logos. It's a Greek term, and it really was a derivative of Greek philosophy. Logos. The logos was thought that was put into form to communicate. So thought put into form to communicate. The logos was representative. So when you have a language, when you have an alphabet, the alphabet has these different symbols that come together in various fashions to produce words. And those words put together in sequence communicate thought to represent something that the thinker wants to convey. That was, that was the Greek thought behind the logos. So it says here, in the beginning was the logos. The thought put into form to communicate something to us. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. Now, the Alpha and the Omega are the first and the last letters in the Greek alphabet. So Jesus says of himself, I am the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. I am the one through whom all of God's desire to communicate to humankind comes. I am the Word. I am the Logos. It's a powerful thought. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, God the Word, God the Son, God, the, the message that the Father wanted to communicate was. And the Word, the Logos, was with God. So this is very important. In the beginning was the Word, 
that, that logos, that desire to communicate, that thought put to form. But that word also was with God. Now, this communicates to us the notion that Jesus Christ was part of a triune God. John's gospel does probably the best of all of the four gospels at communicating to us the reality of a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's a difficult concept to get a hold of and to come to terms with. Theologians have wrestled with it for centuries. But the word was with God. There was a relationship that existed between the word, God the Son, and God, God the Father. And also God the Spirit. So John is pointing out from eternity past existed God the Son, the Word through whom God the Father would communicate to humankind. And that Word, God the Son, had a relationship with God the Father. And he had that relationship with God the Father because he indeed, he in fact, was himself God. The Word was God. Let's just read this together. In the beginning was the word, okay? In the beginning, say it with me. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. It's a powerful, powerful statement. Simple. Simple in its construction. And yet it communicates to us a, a very deep and profound reality. He was with God in the beginning. The Word was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or some of your versions may say comprehended it or understood it. So what is being communicated here in these first five verses of John chapter 1 are the deity of Jesus Christ and the ministry of Jesus Christ as the Word. The fact that Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the person within the Trinity through whom God is going to communicate His message to mankind. And it was God, the Word, who, through whom all things were made. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God communicated His will, and it was done. Jesus was the architect, the, the foundation of creation. We read in, in Revelation chapter 1. It, it says there in Revelation chapter 1 that uh, he is the firstborn over all creation. And the word there, firstborn, really from, from the Greek, what it, it comes from is the base where we get our term architect. He is the firstborn. He is the architect of creation. And that's what we see here. He was the creator. He was the one through whom all things were made. Nothing was made has been made without his hand being involved in it. And in him was life. Not that he was alive. Not that God the Son was alive. But God the Son possessed life. 
He was life. And he had life to give. In him was life. And the life was the light of all mankind. Light and darkness, interesting concepts here. Light and darkness uh, reflect, in, in many respects, knowledge and understanding. Even in a secular sense, when you think of the terms light, you associate that with understanding or wisdom. Darkness, on the other hand, you associate with ignorance and a lack of understanding. And in him, in Jesus Christ, was the life. And the life was the light or the understanding or the truth of all mankind. And the light shone in the darkness. Darkness representative of us without God. Our ignorance of God and his ways. Now, stop and think about this for just a moment. In the garden, the serpent came to Eve and began his temptation of Eve. And he, he, he began it with a challenge to what God had said to them. He said, has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every fruit in the garden? And Eve responded and said, of any tree, the fruit of any tree we may eat, except of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent there promised Eve that if she would only eat of the fruit of this tree that God had forbade, if she would only eat of that fruit of that tree, that her eyes would be opened, that there would be an illumination, a knowledge that would come into her, and she would understand things differently, and she would be like God. That was the temptation. That was what the serpent drew her in. There was this promise of light an awareness, an understanding that the serpent said she could possess if she would only disobey God's command. And he hasn't changed his tactics unto this day. He promises us through sin an experience with life that will illuminate us and expand us. When, in fact, when we engage in sin, we are in darkness. Sin is pleasant for a season. It's true. But ultimately, sin brings about death and darkness, an ignorance, a lack of understanding of who God is and what he wants for your life. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not comprehended it. So Jesus Christ was God's word to mankind, his communication, his representation of what he was and what he wanted for men to understand about him. Now, from verse 6 through verse 13, sandwiched in between the first five verses and the last few verses that we're going to be talking about, is the introduction of John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now, John the Baptist was this extraordinary man, uh, 
a voice in the wilderness crying out, pave the way because the Lord is coming. And he had a special ministry of witness and testimony to the advent of Jesus' first coming. And so he proclaimed Jesus. He proclaimed repentance to the nation of Israel. He said, there's one coming after me who is greater than me, whose shoestrings I'm not worthy to untie. And he came as a witness to the light. And John was a very powerful witness to the light. Jesus said of John, not a greater has been born of woman than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. So John was a witness. Now, I, I, I br- draw this out because I want you to understand, again, as we move into this season of study of the Gospel of John and of testifying and witnessing ourselves to the light, that you too have a ministry. Now, perhaps your ministry wasn't proclaimed in the second chapter of Malachi as it was with John. But God has called you. He has given you a sphere of influence that is unlike any other person in this world. You can touch people and communicate things to people that no one else can because you have connections with certain people and because you have a a relationship with certain people that allows you to represent, as John did, the true light. I want you to be aware of that. I want you to understand that. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, that is the Jewish nation, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So Jesus came as the Messiah, as the true light. John proclaimed his coming. Not everyone received Jesus. This is one of the things I I love about Spencer's approach. Uh, There's not this sense that you have to convert people, that you have to get the tabulation going about how many conversions you've had. You just share the truth of what the true light has done in your life. It's up to God convert those people it's up to the holy spirit to convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment but even when jesus first came even when he was physically present upon this earth not everyone received him even though they saw the works that he did the miracles that he performed not everyone received him but to those who did receive him he gave the power to become children of god and think about that statement for just a second think about your reality your experience You came out of darkness into his marvelous light. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. God is somewhere in heaven sitting upon his throne and he's looking down upon this congregation and he's saying, those are my kids. That's a powerful statement. It's through the gospel. It's through Jesus Christ. And and think about it. You became a Christian because someone shared 
the true light with you. In some way, they gave you a Bible. Maybe they talked to you about Jesus. Maybe they invited you to church. Perhaps they prayed for you. Someone played a role in your conversion. And you are now called a child of God. You're a child not born of natural descent. The Jews thought that because they were Jewish, they were saved. They had this lineage that allowed them to be saved. Not so. Nor of human decision. The Pharisees and the Sadducees believed that because they kept the law, God owed them salvation. They had, through their own decision, kept the law, and God owed them a place in heaven because of that. Not so. Or of a husband's will, or most of the translations will say the will of man. The Romans believed that because they were so powerful, they could become God. In fact, the, the Roman Caesars called themselves God in the flesh. Not so. It's not man's will that allows us to become a child of God. We must be born again of the Spirit of God. I've told you this story before, but people used to ask John Wesley, why do you keep preaching that men must be born again? And Wesley responded, because you must be born again. And that's true. That's the only way into the family of God is through the new birth. So there's this witness, God, the Word, coming into the world, the true light, witnessed to by John the Baptist and by every believer who has ever followed after and has come into the family of God as a new, new creation. Now, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So, God, the Word, became flesh made his dwelling among us. Think about that for a second. Sometimes we read over this stuff and we don't stop to think about what we're reading. But I want you to think about the word became flesh. What would you do right now if through those doors Jesus Christ walked through? The word made flesh tabernacling literally among us you know what the tabernacle in the wilderness was interesting because the outer part of it was just made of animal skins it was very plain animal skins and sticks there was nothing about that tabernacle that would have suggested that within those skins and sticks that were holding it up was the Ark of the Covenant, made out of pure gold, possessing the testimony, the Ten Commandments, and the place where the Shekinah, the very glory of God, the Kabod of God, would dwell. If Jesus walked through the door, we might not even recognize him in the flesh. In fact, that's what it says in Isaiah. In Isaiah, it said he had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. There was nothing about his appearance that made him special. In fact, there in the garden when Judas was betraying him, Judas had to point him out with a kiss. There, was, there wasn't a glow around Jesus on the outside, 
But within Jesus Christ, within the Word made flesh, within the one who tabernacled among us, we saw His glory, John says. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John testified concerning Him, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because He was before me. Out of His fullness, that is, out of the fullness of Jesus Christ, we have all received grace in place of grace. Or literally, literally, grace layered upon grace layered upon grace. It never stops in our lives. We're continually receiving grace from him because it's out of his fullness. We have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Out of his fullness, we have received all the grace that we need in order to be saved, all of the grace we need in order to live this life in a holy and a, and a, a godly way. Peter wrote that we have become partakers of the divine nature through the grace of God. And everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness He has given us through Jesus Christ. So of his fullness, we have all received. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, grace and truth, I want to talk about this for just a moment. This is a tough thing to balance, I find. Just speaking for myself, I think grace and truth sometimes is very difficult to balance. It's easy for me to Look at this word and, and look at the Ten Commandments, de- determine and define what sin is, and look at someone else's life and say, that person is sinning. That person is not doing what God has said they're supposed to do. Or it's not so hard for me to say, okay, I love you, I accept you. It doesn't matter what you do. Just come into the body of Christ and live however you want to. I don't want to really worry about your life. Grace. On the one side is grace, which which is just flesh without bone. On the other side is truth, which is just bone without flesh. Jesus balanced grace and truth. That's the the charge that we have as Christians, is to balance grace and truth in our lives. And the the best illustration I have ever seen in the scriptures of that is found in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus. Jesus is sitting on the ground. They rush her into his presence and say, Lord, we found, or teacher, we found this woman caught in the act of adultery, in the very act. Now the law says we should stone her. What do you say? And so the Bible says that Jesus sat there writing on the ground, and it doesn't tell us what he wrote. But as he wrote, the people gathered around waiting to hear what he was going to say. How would you balance grace and truth in this situation? Jesus said, he who is without sin among you, pick up the first stone. And of course we know, From the oldest to youngest, they left the presence of the woman caught in adultery and the Lord. And Jesus said to her, woman, where are your accusers? She said, they've all left, Lord. And here's the grace. 
neither do I accuse you. Now stop and think about that. She was caught in the very act of adultery. The law clearly said she should have been stoned. Of course, the man should have been stoned too. Hard to be caught in the act of adultery unless there are two parties involved. But neither do I condemn you. But then he said, go and sin no more. Truth. See, we're not doing anybody any favors when we pour out grace upon them, but don't speak truth into their lives. Nor are we doing anybody any favor when we speak truth into the life, but we grant them no grace. Jesus was able to balance grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So Jesus as it says in Colossians 1.15, is the representation of the invisible God. Jesus, as it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, is the exact representation or imprint, literally, of the Father. Philip said to Jesus in John 14, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been so long with you that you don't understand? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus was God the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was the Logos, God the Father communicating His heart to us. Jesus isn't just the plan of salvation. Jesus is salvation. And that's what the Father communicated to us in a perfect, perfect way. So who is Jesus? That's what I started off talking about this morning. Who is Jesus? And as we enter into this, I want to um, reflect upon that. First, he is God's eternal word, God's communication to man concerning his essential character. He's the creator of all things, God's master builder. He is the life giver. He is the one who is able to give us new life. He's the true light. He is God's revelation to man of what is true about God. He is the incarnation, God in the flesh. He is the one who became like us so that we could relate to God through him. And he is the fullness of God's grace. And he is the reconciler. He is the one who demonstrates the heart of the Father to be reconciled to his creation. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want everybody who's here this morning, this is all a part of what we are going to be focusing on over this season in our church and in our community. I want everybody who's here this morning um, to pick up a prayer card in front of you and a pencil or a pen, whatever is there, and a this is strategic. This is strategic because I believe that it remains the heart of the Father to reach lost souls. We're having Spencer teach us about evangelism and about making our lives like John the Baptist, a witness to the Word. But a big part of us connecting with our community with our family, with our friends, is prayer. 
And what I would like you to do, what I'm asking you to do, is on those prayer cards to write the name of a person. It could be a family member, could be a friend, could be a coworker, someone you, you cross paths with, that either you have opportunity to share with, to be a light to, or perhaps you're just hoping, praying, desiring their salvation. I want you to write that person's name down on that card. What do, and then once you have done that, we're going to take a moment here and we're going to pray. But I want you to take those cards and on your way out today, please, please place them in the prayer box. Because we are going to begin uh, an intentional and strategic season of praying for these names. Praying for these people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Praying for their darkness to become light. Just as you came into the light because of someone's prayer, because of someone's sharing, because of the power of that, so too, I believe that the names upon these cards, at their proper time, in that certain season, God is going to draw them. I'm going to be praying for them. I'm going to share them with some of our groups that are uh, focused on prayer. And for any, uh, we also have a group that is uh, focused on intercessory prayer each Sunday from 11 to 12. That group will have these names. We are going to be pounding these names before the throne of God and asking for God's mercy in their lives. And along with that, we are going to be stepping out of our comfort zones in whatever way God directs us. Maybe it's through prayer. Maybe it's through uh, a direct witness of the gospel. Maybe it's through a loving action. However the Holy Spirit leads you, you are going to become light in darkness because, in fact, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And he said, don't put your candle under a bushel. That's not what it's for. The, the candle is lit so that it can illuminate the room. And that's what we're going to do. So right now, have, have you all filled out a card, got a name on it? Okay. Heavenly Father, we begin this process by praying for each and every soul represented by a name on one of these prayer cards. Lord, there are dozens of names that are written down, and you know each one. You knew them before the foundation of the world. And your Holy Spirit, even now, is at work convicting them of sin and of righteousness, of judgment. And Lord, we pray for them, and we will continue to pray for them. We will continue to call them before your throne of grace and seek out salvation for them in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I also pray for this congregation of saints, each one of us, that you would give us boldness to speak forth the word as we ought, that we would live lives that allow our lights to so shine before men that they will see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Lord, do a profound miracle here. John talked about seven signs or seven miracles, Lord, 
there are dozens of miracles on these cards waiting to happen. In Jesus' name, amen.